You know, I want to say a word just to our youth today for thanking for helping to usher and for Cameron Kelly, who's willing to be reading our scripture. Together, we have been able to appreciate our youth today who are helping to be leading in our worship service. You know, it was in 1903, 1903, when an invention took place that would change our world. From the beginning of time, people had dreamed about flying like the birds. But for centuries, we had known it's impossible. In fact, one of the things that was said over and over again was, if God had meant for man to fly, God would have given him wings. It was impossible. Everybody knew it. But then it was in the late 1890s that we had a man, Otto Lilienthal, who was a German aviator, pioneer, who developed like a hang glider. And he had lots of pictures of him jumping off these hills over in Germany and gliding with this thing over his head, if you will. He really was a hang glider. He became known as the King Glider. And he so inspired people around the world. Until 1896, when he was out hang gliding, and he stalled, fell to the earth, and he died. But before he died, he did inspire so many people there in France, in Germany, over in England, and of course in the United States. People caught this aviation fever. Either, like the large majority, it's impossible, you shouldn't do this, or there was the few who thought, what a great dream. In the United States, we wound up looking to Samuel Langley to be the one who would invent the flying machine. Samuel Langley was the person in charge of the Smithsonian Institute. He was a brilliant man, an astronomer, a physicist. He had people connected in high places. President McKinley was a friend. In fact, President McKinley wanted him to develop the airplane. So he leaned on the War Department to make a a grant of $50,000 to give it to Langley to develop the airplane. It was the largest grant at that point that our War Department had ever made. That's a lot of money in 1900. And of course there was Alexander Graham Bell. Alexander Graham Bell also believed in the airplane and he gave Langley another 20. So he had a budget of $70,000. And he went out and he developed this plane over several years. He had this huge houseboat on the Potomac River to act as the launch pad and to catapult the plane off. And it was in the summer of 1903 that the Potomac River was full of reporters. There was fireworks on the shore. They had a man, Mr. Manley, climb on this plane. They shot it off and it went up and it came down like a sack of cement. It hit the water. It went nowhere. The headlines the next day were, Plane is Submarine. (laughs) They pulled it back together again, and on December the 8th, 1903, they tried to fly again, and this time when it lifted off of the houseboat, it simply broke in half and crashed into the water. There would be no more flights. And that flying machine would not come from Samuel Langley. No, America didn't know it, but they needed to be looking to two brothers in Dayton, Ohio. Orville and Wilbur Wright. Years later, when Wilbur Wright had achieved success, he was being interviewed and said, what would you tell a young person if they want to wind up being successful? And Wilbur Wright said, I would tell them if you want to be successful, choose a good father, 
choose a good mother, and be born in Ohio. You got a few strikes against you up there, but that's exactly what happened for Orville and for Wilbur. They had a great father. Milton, uh, Milton Wright was a wonderful man. He was a minister who became bishop in the Evangelical United Brethren Church, the EUBs. It was in 1968 that the Methodist Church merged with the Evangelical United Brethren Church to become the United Methodist Church. He had a great father, a man of great faith, a man who encouraged scientific thinking that created a loving family. Had a wonderful mom, but she developed TB and died when she was in her 50s, back when the boys were just in their 20s, left a real hole in the family. Their youngest sister, Catherine, she was the youngest in the family. She would grow up and she would go to college. The only one of the children in the family to go to college which is highly unusual in 1900, that it's the girl who goes to college. But she got her education and she came back to be a teacher. Orville and Wilbur never went to college because they had already started a business when they were in high school in the printing business. They were real entrepreneurs. And so much so that they also saw the new craze going on in America of bicycles. And they decided to start building bicycles there in Dayton. And they started a bicycle company. And they made a great product. And so the two of them made a good living. But they saw the pictures of Otto Lilienthal. And they were inspired. And when they heard that he had died, they felt a sense of responsibility to carry on with the dream. And so they decided they would try to create their own glider and then airplane. So what they did was they decided to go down to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, to get there on this outer banks and to start working at developing a glider. They started going in 1901 and 2 and 3, year after year, continuing to try to progress in spite of the fact they didn't have the wealth of Langley. They didn't have connections They were not the most brilliant people with access to resources of the Smithsonian. They were subject to ridicule. I mean, people everywhere still said, it's impossible. Why are you crazy and trying to learn how to fly? The people at Kitty Hawk even said, we believe in a good God, a bad devil, a hot hell, and that that same God does not intend for man to fly. However, Orville and Wilbur were such nice people and people of faith who worked so hard, they kind of won the hearts of so many people there on the Outer Banks. And they started coming together to help them. And so they did work hard year after year in spite of all that was being said. So much so that on December the 17th, 1903, they constructed a wooden rail There's a bunch of two-by-fours they nailed together, got some bicycle wheels that they put on top of it so the plane could rest on it and run down the wooden rail and lift off and leave the bicycle wheels behind so it wasn't extra weight. That runway cost $4. $4 versus the cost of a houseboat. Now, in the end, Samuel Langley would have spent $70,000 on this project. And when it failed, he said... We failed because of lack of government funding. 
Some things never change. The Wright brothers would spend $1,000 to get a plane to fly. December the 17th, it rolled down that runway. It lifted off. It flew for all of 12 seconds, 120 feet, and it touched down in the sand. It was the first flight ever of a craft heavier than air under its own power carrying a person. They had conquered the air. They had a flying machine. It would fly four times that day. The first flight was flown by Orville. The last flight was flown by Wilbur. And it flew 852 feet for 59 seconds. They knew when they left that day to come back home, that would be the last flight of that year, when they came home, they knew they'd conquered the air. They had a flying machine. They still needed to develop it and grow it, but they knew they had changed the world. It was amazing. I remember so much when I went to the Air and Space Museum my first time. If you walk in off the mall, you walk in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, you'll look up and there's this little bi-wing airplane, the Wright Flyer. You just stand there and look at it. It made my heart beat. But then you look over and right beside here in the entranceway is a capsule, Apollo 11. The capsule that carried Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins in the summer of 1969 all the way to the moon. And I stood there looking at this right flyer and I thought, it flew 120 feet, 12 seconds, 31 miles an hour. And 66 years later, only 66 years later, this capsule flew at 25,000 miles an hour, 250,000 miles all the way to the moon and back. It's incredible. And for all those years, people had said if God had meant for man to fly, He would have given him wings. But they were wrong. God did mean for us to fly. Only He didn't give us wings. He gave us a greater gift. He gave us the gift of imagination. The ability to think, to dream, to stand on the sandy dunes of Kitty Hawk and say, wouldn't it be great if... Why don't we... The gift of imagination. It's how you invent the future. This morning, I want to begin a new sermon series entitled, Inventing the Future. Alan Key is a great computer scientist. And I love his statement. He said, it is easier to invent the future than it is to predict it. We're all trying to figure out what the future will be. But rather than sit around and try to figure out what it will be or predict it, it is easier to invent it. And to invent it means that you have to open your heart and mind to the leading of God's Holy Spirit to use your sense of creativity so you can help dream and invent the future. I love our scripture lesson this morning. It's the last passage in all the book of Matthew. And in the book of Matthew it says, The disciples went to go meet Jesus on the mountain, and Jesus came to them. Now in Matthew, whenever you go up on the mountain, that's when you know something important is about to happen. 
We don't know where the mountain was. That's not important. Scholars say this is a theological statement here. You go to the mountain when important things are going to happen. After Jesus had been baptized, he went up on the mountain and faced temptation. Jesus went up onto the mountain to do teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. He went up onto the mountain for transfiguration, to be transformed and see Moses and Elijah. At the end, he goes up onto the mountain to give what we know is the Great Commission. Jesus met the disciples on the mountain, and there he says, Go, make disciples of all nations. Just stop right there for a moment. What an audacious statement. What a crazy thing to say. These 11 men are not the Samuel Langleys of his day. They're not the men of power and wealth and knowledge. They are the Wright brothers of that day. A lack of education, a lack of funds, a lack of connection. And it's to those people, the fishermen and the tax collectors, that Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. What a statement. Had Jesus made that statement a month ago, a year ago, it would have fallen on deaf ears. But it was Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection, that opened the minds of the disciples to be able to hear that kind of a command, to use their imagination Go make disciples of all nations. They could hear it and they would do it. I believe that you and I are called to use the gift of our imagination to be open to the leading of God's Holy Spirit so that we are able to dream and invent the future. I want today to kind of be a a foundation for the whole series and, and I really want to just say two things. One, I believe we think too small. We think we know our limitations. And when you think you know your limitations, then you've already decided this is possible, this is impossible. And I wonder how much we miss doing in life, experiencing in life, creating in life, because we already decided that's impossible and we won't even go check it out. You never look. You never try because we think too small and we've already decided we know our limits. When the Wright brothers flew that day in Kitty Hawk, they knew this was the beginning of something big. And so they sent a telegram home to their sister Catherine and it read, Success, four flights Thursday, moving all against 21 mile wind. Started from level with engine power alone. Average speed through the air, 31 miles. Longest, 59 seconds. Inform press, home for Christmas, Orville. When Catherine got it, she took it down to the Daily Times there in Dayton, gave it to the newspaper because she knew what a big story. And the next morning, the story came out in the newspaper and it said, Local bicycle mechanics hope to be home for Christmas. They didn't mention the flight. Why? Well, they would later be asked about it, and they said, well, people were claiming to fly all the time. Nobody believed it. It must be impossible. 
Someone else said 59 seconds. You know, if they'd have said 59 minutes, okay, but 59 seconds? Nobody thought it had happened or was important. So it's fascinating. Orville and Wilver came home, and they knew they needed to continue the development now of their airplane, and so they went out to Huffman Prairie. It was 82 acres, about eight miles outside of town. They knew the owner. It was a cow pasture, wide open space. And they said, can we rent this so we can be out here and try to fly our airplane? And he said, you can just use it for free. We know he said to people in town, they're such nice boys. I hope they don't kill themselves. (laughs) They are crazy. Nobody believed they could really fly. The trolley would get you out there in 40 minutes for a nickel. And so they went out and there they began working for the next year and a half, right there in wide open space. They had tried to tell the newspaper. They wrote to the government about this new invention. They wrote to Scientific American, the magazine. And do you know how many people traveled to Dayton to see? None. For the next year and a half, the press never got on the trolley to go out to Huffman Prayer to see what they were doing. Because they already knew it's impossible. They knew the limits. There was no reason to go out there. And so the message was left to a man named Amos Root. Amos Root lived in Medina, Ohio. And it turned out that he was a beekeeper. He was also an inventor. He had invented the beehive. A beehive where you could go collect the honey and not destroy the hive. And when he was started, everybody said, you're a nut. But he developed it. And so he started developing beehives and beekeeping equipment, and it got shipped all over the world. He became very wealthy. He was a man of great faith, never missed church, taught Sunday school. And he believed God had given you the gift of imagination. And he loved all the opportunities that were in the world. And of course, the car got invented then, and he immediately bought one. He said, I hate hooking up horses, and I hate cleaning up after horses. So he got himself an iron horse. And he got in his car, and he drove all the way to Dayton. Because he had heard maybe about some boys in an airplane. And he came, and there he saw them fly. He would write in his journal, his heart skipped a beat. One of the greatest days in all of his life. He said, we do not know what it will ultimately mean, but it will change the world. He wrote accurately about what he saw. He talked to the Wright brothers. They liked Amos immediately. But then they said, could you hold off publishing the article? This was September 1904. They said, we think we're about to, to really get this thing just right. And what did Amos say? When you have a great scoop like this, and would you hold off? He said, of course. I will wait till you tell me. It would be January 1905 when they said, we really got it. And he said, fine. The Scientific American would not take the article, nor the New York Times or anywhere else. So he published it in the the Gleanings of Bee Culture. It was his own magazine that he sent out to talk about beekeeping. And the announcement of the Wright brothers' great flight would come through the Gleanings in Bee Culture. Because he saw. He knew it was important. And no one else did. And finally, people started to come. 
And when they saw, they were amazed. They couldn't believe. And just as an aside, Amos Root, it's kind of fascinating, he had that ability to see possibilities and opportunities. In 1920, a local priest came to him and said, could you make very high-end liturgical candles? And so he started to make candles, and ultimately Root got out of beekeeping and into candle-making and Root Candles. That's the founding and the business of it, still in business today. He was someone who could see how often you and I know what the limitations are, we think, and so we don't even bother to go look at the possibilities. And we miss it. I believe that Jesus' life and death and resurrection helped to open the disciples' minds. If after, Before the resurrection, if Jesus had said to Peter, you know, you're going to go to Jerusalem and preach in front of thousands of people, and 3,000 people we converted in one day. Peter would have said, that's, that's not possible. When Jesus came to these 11 men and said, I need you to go make disciples of all nations, and said, if you will be faithful, uh, 290 years from now, you will conquer the Roman Empire. Constantine would be declared emperor of Rome, and in 323, he would declare the Roman Empire Christian, stopping all persecution, starting to give land and money to build churches, it would change the world. Because on a mountain, Jesus said to 11 fishermen and tax collectors, go, make disciples of all nations. It sounds impossible. How often do we think too small? Secondly, never forget you've been given permission to try. Jesus said to the disciples on the mountain, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. The disciples understood authority. They were under the authority of the Torah. They'd lived by the law all their life. They understood authority of the high priest and the Jewish hierarchy. They understood the authority of the Roman Empire. It had just put Jesus on a cross. They understood authority. And so Jesus was trying to say to them, I'm not telling you to wait around for somebody else to say you can do this. I'm asking you to use your ability to dream, to be creative on something bigger than you could ever imagine. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Try. You and I have been asked by God to use our God-given gift of imagination and to try. You don't have to wait around for someone else to approve, someone else to tell you it's okay. This summer, one of the books that I read that really was quite profound was entitled Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. Profound book. It was by Antoine Gawande. Antal Gawande is of a Indian descent. His father was from India. He was born in the United States. He is a surgeon, and it was an amazing book. But in the book, he talks about Dr. Bill Thomas. It was 1991. Bill Thomas was 31 years old, just finishing his residency in family medicine. 
He wanted to live in upstate New York. He loved being out on the farm and the land. And he saw a job to be the medical director of Chase Memorial Nursing Home. And so he took the job. And when he took that job in the nursing home, what he saw was that there was so much lifelessness in this nursing home. He said there was no light in people's eyes. There was no joy. Now, this nursing home was well known for being a great nursing home, had a high reputation, good patient safety, very profitable. It was a good place. It turned out that Roger Haffield was the person who ran it. And Bill went to him and said, I've been thinking. He'd used his imagination. I, I see something different. Could we try? Could we apply for a grant from New York and try and do something different? Well, Roger was always wanting to try to improve, so he called the leaders together. Five of them sat around a table, and he said, all right, what are you thinking? And he said, well, I think we ought to apply for this grant and try something different. What's wrong in a nursing home? Boredom, helplessness, loneliness. It's boredom, hopelessness, loneliness. We need to bring in lots of life, lots of living things. So what I suggest is let's get rid of all these plants that are artificial plants. Bring in live plants. Put in a garden that's vegetables and flowers outside the windows. We need to bring in animals. We need to bring in children. All right, we can think about all that. Okay, well, let's start bring, get, bring in all the, get rid of all those other plants. Bring in living plants. We'll write that down. I want to bring in animals. All right, well, the New York State law says you can either have one dog or one cat. That's what it said. What do you want? He said, I'd like a dog. Okay, we'll try for a dog. But I want two dogs. Two dogs? The law says one dog. I want two. And Bill said there was this silence around the table, and he knew the whole project hinged on this moment. And they sat there until finally Roger said, All right. We'll write down two dogs. We'll see what they say. Great. But you know, everybody doesn't like dogs. We also need a cat. (laughs) A cat? We just said you either get one dog or one cat. You're already asking for two dogs. You want a cat too? No, no, I want four cats. Four cats? Well, we got two floors. we, We need four cats. That's crazy. It'll never get passed. Fine. Write it down. Fine. Okay, so let's just assume this thing is never going to get passed. We'll ask for two dogs and four cats. He said, and then Bill said, think about this. When you come to winter, what's the one thing you no longer hear that you get to hear the rest of the year out here in the woods? And Roger thought for a moment and said, birdsong? Yes. You mean to tell me you want birds too? The law says no birds in nursing homes. He said, I know, but I want 100 parakeets. A hundred parakeets? Are you absolutely nuts? Two dogs, four cats, and a hundred parakeets? There's no way this will ever be approved. He said, can we just ask? Fine. I mean, it doesn't matter. This will never be passed. Fine. Write it down. Well, they wrote down, we want child care for our employees. We want an after-school program for other children. Oh, they wrote it all down. doesn't matter. They sent it into the state, but Bill went to sea, and he brought other people with him, and they argued their case, and lo and behold, they got the grant and the exemptions for all of that 
in order to try. And when he came back, he said, we don't want to roll this out slowly with a dog here and a cat there and a bird here. We want shock therapy. (laughs) He says, we want it to happen all at the same time. And they said, all right. They had no idea what they were about to do. And so they had people up there hauling out all the fake plants and bringing in live plants and digging in the flower garden, the vegetable garden, and they're bringing in dogs, they're bringing in cats. And then the guy showed up with a hundred parakeets. The only thing they didn't have was cages. (laughs) So this guy arrived with his hundred parakeets and he took them to the beauty salon. He set them free and closed the door. He had made his delivery and he left. It was later that afternoon when the cages arrived. And when the cages arrived, they had to put them together. And by then, the residents were out in the hall looking through the windows as the staff went in with their cages to try to catch the parakeets and put them in their cages. And they said they laughed their heads off watching us try to catch these parakeets. Within a week, all hundred parakeets had been adopted and named. And within a couple months, you couldn't deny it. Something happened. The lights came on. You could see it in their eyes. Those who could not speak, spoke. Those who could not walk, were showing up at the nurse's station asking, can I take the dog for a walk? Now, this was a two-year study to try to look at Chase Memorial and to look at another nursing home a few miles away that would kind of be the control subject and see if anything different happened. Two years later, what they were able to say was the amount of prescriptions written per patient at Chase Memorial was down 50% over the other nursing home. The most drug that was no longer prescribed was the drug for agitation. The cost of drugs at Chase Memorial was down 62%. The amount of deaths at Chase Memorial were down 15%. Why? Because a young man had used his imagination to dream something different and gotten permission to try to invent a new future. And so can we. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Go. Use your God-given gift of imagination. Open your heart to the leading of God's Holy Spirit. And God will help to open your mind so that you can invent the future. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.